Welcome to Let's Talk Sales. This is the podcast for anyone interested in growing sales. Does your sales team function like a group of mavericks? Do your newly hired sales reps seem confused about what it is that they should be doing? Are you seeing disconnects between sales and other key departments like marketing or operations or finance? Today's episode of Let's Talk Sales is brought to you by our ebook on building a sales process for repeatable success. You'll learn how to measure the effectiveness of your sales process, evolve it over time, and more. Be sure to download a copy today. You can find it in the notes for today's show at criteriaforsuccess.com slash pod 224. This is Elizabeth Frederick, and today I am speaking to the director of QED, an organizational development consultancy that helps organizations improve people performance and business value within three specialist areas, performance and change, resilience, and evaluation and analytics. He is based in Southampton in the UK, and our guest is a psychologist with specialties in evaluation, learning, and development. Interestingly enough, he hosts a podcast of his own called Resilience Unraveled. As a uh, fun fact, he actually started his career, or earlier in his life, he was a top-ranked professional musician. I think we'll love to hear about that. And I want to thank him especially for his patience. We actually recorded this same episode. I'm sure it'll be different. The same outline of an episode a few weeks ago, the file somehow got destroyed, and he has been patient and kind enough to have this conversation with us. So this paragon of resilience and virtue is Dr. Russell Thackeray. Thank you so much for joining us today, Russell. Hey, Elizabeth. Um, I don't know about Paragon, but um, listen, I'll, I'll take any compliments that are flying around. So thank you. It's a joy to be with you again. Yeah, I, I'm really looking forward to our conversation today. Well, I just shared some of those highlights of your bio, a lot of really interesting elements there, but that's not you as a person. Um, so I'd love if you could introduce yourself to our listeners, maybe talk a little bit about where your passion for what you're doing began, or some key stops on the journey to where you are today. Okay. Um, well, to, to start with what, what I currently do, exactly as you say, I spend a lot of time working with um, leadership teams, um, individuals, um, people who are uh, working in the commercial world and talking about two subjects, really, um, resilience and burnout, and how leadership management and um, the way that we run our jobs and our lives affects our ability to really be um, successful in life, have a positive mental attitude and, you know, be, be, you know, have good performance because actually work is a very important part of what we do in life. Absolutely. And I think, you know, what's fascinating, there's sort of two strategies for work, isn't there? Work and passion. There's a lot of chat about find your passion and, you know, all that sort of malarkey. But actually, sometimes um, you find your passion through work and, you know, you, you start doing a job and you discover you're passionate about it because not everybody spends their life thinking about where they're going and how they're going to get there. And so, the you know, I, I got fascinated in this idea that, um you know what? What is it? What is the? What is it? The work you do that actually has meaning and you know gives you that energy to be able to do what you like to do. And I've I've had two or three changes of you know substantial changes of career, and uh, and actually in the in the throes of another one, believe it or not. So um, I think it's fascinating for people who do switch careers, who take control of their own lives to. To talk about how that works and to, you know, to help reflect with people who sit in organisations for a long time. And um, and I think understanding your energy, capacity, resilience, your psychology is as relevant for a leader of a business 
to someone who's starting out in life, uh, to anybody in any any field of work. But it is particularly important for salespeople and sales entrepreneurs and sales directors and sales execs and people in marketing because of the sort of slightly unique nature of the amount of um, potential pushback and knockback and um, rejection that can exist in that sort of role. Absolutely. Um, That's such a great example. I think also sales and sales leadership are one area of the business where performance is incredibly obvious and incredibly measurable. And certainly there have been improvements in measurement and evaluation and analytics of other areas of the business in the last few years. But it's still the case that when it comes to um, selling, there's, there's dollars and cents or pounds or euros or whatever currency you have. There's um, opportunities in the pipeline or not. There's people you spoke to or didn't. And so it's, um, it's a really incredibly visible um, performance that you don't always see in other areas of business. So that makes it especially more challenging when it comes to um, times of difficulty because maybe everybody can kind of see that you're not achieving the results that you were intending to. And, and, and that's interesting, isn't it? Because um, whilst it's very obvious for salespeople um, that the results are there to be seen, it, it sort of depends on the role because there's some very, very large business-to-business consultants who, for example, um, only make one sale a year. Mm-hmm. And I work a lot with the uh, in the world of corporate law. And I mean, they're some of the most successful salespeople you'll ever meet, but they wouldn't consider themselves to be salespeople at all. In fact, they actually would be thrown in the hands of an horror if you suggested to them that they were um, they were salespeople, and they just have a different word for it. They call themselves rainmakers or business development specialists, or mm-hmm. um, you know that sort of thing. But you're, but you're right. At the end of the day, if you if you do your job, you have revenue, and if you don't do your job, you, you simply don't. And I think um, part of the mindset of that is as we go through our lives, the way we sell, our wisdom and our experience can actually help us or hinder us. And I meet people in their you know, 20s, 30s, 40s who are burned out with sales, who, who almost think, actually, we've got to grow up and get out of sales because somehow sales holds us back. And yet what you realize is when you get to you know, um, slightly older age, is you're selling every day because sales is just a communication strategy. And um, you know you never stop, and it's and I think and I think sometimes um, we we undervalue the professionalism of sales. We don't think of sales itself as a as a legitimate professionalism because we're sort of slightly tainted by some of the difficult or more nefarious practices of specific types of um, professions. So, for example, in our world, over in the UK, I think the the most loathed professions are used car salespeople, estate agents journalists and politicians all of whom have a high capacity of sort of push selling in their in their sort of tool toolkit and and it's sort of it's fascinating isn't it because actually we have to depend on those people and we don't just recognize that they're not they're not terrible people they're just working in a place where that actually demands a certain approach and there's some very successful salespeople, are very honest and you know people with high integrity, who get besmirched by the sort of reputation that we allow ourselves to propagate. We don't push back when people are saying, "Oh, salespeople, that's terrible." We say, "No, no, this is a legitimate profession of which we should be justly proud." Absolutely, it's such an important thought. And when you think about it, it 
that can actually improve your resilience and improve your confidence. And a lot of, um, you know, what you were talking about earlier, giving you energy and passion. If you can really see the value and the importance of what it is that you do. On the other hand, if you absorb those stereotypes and um, something we call head trash, you know, the self-limiting beliefs, that is incredibly limiting and can, can really cause you a lot of difficulty. If you start to feel like I'm pushy, I'm a waste of time, I'm annoying, I'm difficult, I'm frustrating, that's going to make it much more difficult for you to, you know, pick yourself up and take the next step that you need to take. Yeah, true. But, but, but one of the things we have to you know, develop in, through the course of our lives is this idea of mental toughness, where we, we start to really become accountable, not just for our performance and behavior, but for our own thoughts. Because those thoughts you've just described are all our own thoughts. Okay. It's not somebody else having them for us. And we have to avoid casting people as victims of their own mind. And I often when I have conversations with people when they say, this is what I'm thinking. And I'm saying, well, who's doing the thinking? Uh-huh. And, they look at you, and they look at you as if you've arrived from Mars. And, <laughs> and they say, well, well, me. And I said, well, why don't you think something else then? And, and, uh, <laughs> and they look at me and say, if only it was that easy. And I said, well, what if I could show you a way that really is that easy? And they say, wow, let's get on with it. And, and, and it's really quite fascinating how people need to be empowered to actually trust themselves to think the need, the way they need to think. And some of this is mental toughness and some of this is emotional resilience and some of this is the, the, um, the re-empowering of themselves to actually treat themselves as an adult because a lot of people are put in a place of victimhood or being almost infantilized, you know, this idea that we're treated, we're treated very gently with kid, kid gloves because everyone's frightened and hurting our feelings. Well, the salespeople, you know, we're quite robust because we're, we're very, we're, we're okay, aren't we? We're okay to, if sometimes, you know, sometimes people hang the phone up on us or people say no, because actually we just look at it and think, well, do you know what? We didn't win that today because we didn't use the right strategies. So we need to learn from that and then start thinking, how do we do that differently tomorrow? And that idea of starting to bring accountability into the sales process, rather than blaming the client or the customer because uh, they didn't buy, we have to sort of take that accountability that we didn't use that right strategy in the right way in the right time. And now suddenly we can start thinking about learning. And now we can see every lost opportunity is an opportunity for us to get better. And, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a fascinating thought when people start taking ownership for their wins and their losses then actually people start to really exponentially improve their performance. Now, here's the biggest problem. You talked about um, sales leadership and some of the worst managers you'll ever meet in your lives, outside of HR, of course, are sales managers and sales directors because they're often the best salespeople who've been promoted to the be mm-hmm. average sales managers and less than average sales directors whose only you know, um, toolkit in their kit bag is if I press this button and, you know, give you this, I expect you to do that. And it's such an old-fashioned idea, really, in terms of the way we think about people now and the way we think about the sophisticated and complexity of the new sales process or the way that we deal with people. It's such a lost opportunity not to be having a wider debate about how we um, think about building accountability and personal mental toughness and emotional resilience into the, and not just not just to in- individuals, but into the, actually the sales process. And it needs to start with those leaders and managers because when people are burning out in an organization, I mean, burnout is a workplace condition. 
not a personal condition. If people are burning out, it's because the organization are doing something to burn people out. Absolutely. Um, that kind of leads into what I wanted to talk about next, because uh, this podcast is airing in the beginning of February. And this is, for a lot of people, um, a challenging time of year. You probably started the year with plans or ideas. Um, and I think there's there's a term that's often used in war, um, no plan survives engagement. <laughs> um, things probably haven't worked out. Maybe somebody left the team, um, or you had to let somebody go, or you lost a big client, or just you hit, you, you know, you set sales targets and you're not mapping to those targets. So, how can leaders employ resilience or support resilience in their teams as they begin to encounter these challenges that seem to be preventing them from achieving their goals? Well, you see, that's a fascinating question. Can I just flip it upside down for a moment? Because we often think of resilience just being about failure. Well, actually, what about if your plan has um, not working out because you've, you've really overachieved? You've brought on too much business. Oh, absolutely. You've been so successful, you don't know where to go go next. Because actually, sometimes we're more, um, we, we underthink the opportunity of getting things, you know, to be too good rather than always obsessing about things which are, which are bad in a sense. Because often when we're looking at things which haven't worked out and plans that haven't worked out, you know, what we've got to think about either. I mean, sometimes the plan is just wrong. Absolutely. You know, sometimes, especially in sales, sell, the way that sales plans are put together, you know, you start off with this objective that you've got to do X, X, X percent, X volume, X profit, X ratios, whatever it might be. And you've got to do it by a certain time. And, you know, what you do is we were talking earlier, the first month of the year is January. And often sales planning every single year is treated the same. And so we actually have this budgeting process that says we're going to do X for this every single month of this year. And then suddenly we're ahead or behind at the end of January. Well, you know, that might be a great thing or it might be a terrible thing. The point is, it's just a thing. <laughs> And actually, being behind doesn't mean it's the end of the world. It just means that you've got to catch up. So what's your strategy to catch up? Because actually, the point of a plan is is just, as you say, it's just a plan. Now, if you're working in retail sales, the plan's pretty well, will actually do a bit more or will do a bit more, a bit more smart, smartly. If it's a corporate sell, well, actually, sometimes you need to rethink your engagement strategy because actually maybe it's no longer working. Uh, or maybe just that, you know, you were over ambitious in your plan and and maybe the way that your plan now phases has to be thought about the way that you do that again in the b2b space if you're if you're selling big ticket items the fact that you haven't hit your your numbers in in january actually lots of people are quite relaxed about because the number that matters is the one at the end of december Absolutely. it's a bit like sport isn't it sometimes the reason that we have um, interim targets is just to check that we're on target that we're on track but, you know, what matters is who wins the Super Bowl, not who wins all some of the games on the way there, because that's the only game that matters. And so for, for B to, large-scale B2B sales, that's the thing that matters. Now, you know, one of the one of the classic things that happens in selling, through, say, for example, in um, smaller ticket sales, startup sales, you, you'll be, basically be sitting there and, you know, you're waiting for footfall to arrive because that's your job. You're sitting there behind the desk or behind the counter. And if the footfall's there, there's really nothing you can do about it. Your plan is is what? Nothing. Your plan is to sort of say, well, okay, 
I did what I did. I, I converted what I need to convert and then just be actually pragmatic about it. The point you were making earlier is sometimes it's not just the plan that's wrong. It's the self-talk. It's the, oh, my God, I've got the plan wrong. Oh, my God, I need to panic. Oh, I'm such, I'm so terrible. <laughs> what if they fire me? Blah, 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 blah. And that kind of boring old narrative starts off, you know, the sort of the angel and demon, one on each shoulder, and the demon's yelling and screaming and shouting at you. Well, guess what? That's you talking to yourself. So it's time to get a grip of your own thinking and, and think to yourself, they're not conducive, useful thoughts. You should be thinking to yourself, I missed my plan. What's my plan to get back on plan? Absolutely. I love that. Um, what you said, you know, being behind just means you're behind or being in their situation just means you're in the situation. It's a fact. It's not a judgment. It doesn't say anything about who you are as a person. It doesn't even necessarily say anything about plan and your performance. It just says where you are. Sometimes it's, it's sometimes it means the plan's wrong, and you know that's the problem, isn't it? Often we don't we often we rarely think is the plan wrong. What we what we say is the person was wrong, and you know broadly you've got two things: you do more of the same or you do something different. That's they're your choices. Absolutely, um, that's a that's a really wonderful focus. Why is it that you think people? struggle with resilience because to me when I look at um, when I look at salespeople I see top performers and one of the key differentiators is their resilience they get the no they get knocked down they lose the client they lose the opportunity and they get right back to it and then I see some lower performers who just haven't seen those results yet and one of the big differences is they sometimes lack that resilience. So what is it that um, that you think can contribute to that lack of resilience? And what are some ways that people can begin to develop resilience if they haven't yet learned it? Wow, that's a great question. And, and, a, and Absolutely. a massive question because there's a lot there. So the first thing is, I mean, I spend a lot of time talking about resilience, thinking about resilience and interviewing other experts in the field. And, and you know, I've heard the, the nine facts of that model of resilience, this model, that model. And it really comes down to a few things. So you can you can condense it to something that's quite trivial. But we have a model that we call our ROPES model, R-O-P-E-S. And, and it has things built into it. But, you know, motivation and drive and passion often comes from a sense of meaning. I mean, you mentioned that word earlier. And if you know why you're doing something, if there's a purpose in what you're doing, actually that's the starting point. And a lot of people are driven because they want to make money. A lot of people are driven because that because that's aspirational and because there's a point to that. And some people are driven more around that sort of fear-based thing about if they don't have the money, my family will suffer. And, and those two things are, are are absolutely fine because having that sense of meaning or purpose is the is the place of start. Now, you you also have people who work in a in an environment, for example, salespeople are often called fundraisers in the charitable sector. Now, those people have a strong sense of meaning and they, they carry out all the same sales tasks, you know, ringing up, asking people for money and, for, and closing deals and such like, but it's just called fundraising. But they have a stronger sense of meaning because they're working for something that makes a difference somewhere. And you often find that the engagement and resilience scores between the commercial and not-for-profit sectors are very different. You often find that people in the commercial sector have stronger resilience because the people that work in the, um, the not-for-profit sector don't need as much because actually they have this strong sense of meaning. So they don't need to worry about any other sense of it. And one of the challenges you have in the, in the sort of not-for-profit sector is you have people who are over-engaged in their working life. They almost work to assuage their own sense of personal satisfaction before they carry out corporate 
goats. And it's often quite the reverse if you're selling, you know, um, burgers and fries. You know, there's not a great sense of, not always a great sense of satisfaction. Except, of course, when there is. You know, I work a lot with a large um, coffee brand in the UK. And um, I'll sit there and I'll talk and I'll watch youngsters who will be coming into work at, you know, five or six o'clock in the morning, opening up a shop, making coffee for two hours, cleaning the toilets, uh, for a couple of hours, then doing paperwork for a couple of hours. And I ask them why they do it and just say, do you know what? I just enjoy talking to people. I enjoy making coffee. I enjoy the variety. Is it forever? No, it's not forever. But I enjoy it at the moment because I choose to. And sometimes youngsters hit the nail on the head because whether you enjoy something or not is in your head. It's in your gift. It's in your wherewithal. You know, it's that thing about, you know, you can go on holiday and, and be delayed and have a terrible time and it always rains and it always, you know, all that sort of stuff. But you can still enjoy it mm-hmm. because that's in your And that conscious decision to find meaning and to find enjoyment in what you do is is, is the key. And, and I think that people who don't recognise that they can control their thoughts and they can control their emotional states are the people who appear to have less resilience. I think that's such a powerful concept. And as you said, it it, it is amazing what we can control. Uh, I think we've all been in a state where we were maybe experiencing emotion or a feeling and felt like it was in control of us. But then we've probably also been in a state where we were experiencing a feeling and an emotion and we recognized I can intend to and act to feel a different way. And if you take, sometimes you can't control that feeling. But let's say you're experiencing kind of, uh, you're feeling kind of demoralized, you're feeling kind of frustrated, and you know that there's action that you need to take. And you think, I'm going to wait until I feel inspired and motivated to take action. You're going to not necessarily feel motivated and inspired. You're going to continue to feel demoralized and frustrated. If instead you say, despite the way I feel right now, I'm going to take that action, that actually impacts the way you feel. You start to take action and you start to feel proud of yourself for the action that you were taking. And you recognize, I can do things. I can get things done. I can achieve results. And that can motivate you to start to feel a different way. And it motivates more activity and different kinds of activity. And all of that, just because you you chose to take action instead of just kind of wallowing in your feelings. Well, you see, this is, this is part of the issue when you start to think about resilience. You have to really stop being more scientific about the way you think about the way the body operates. So if you think about it, there's an internal or an active, let's say there's an external activating event. What happens is the brain, brain's construction starts to fire off neurotransmitters, activating neuropeptides that stimulate hormones in the body. So that activating event could be a tiger leaping out at you, or it could be a thought about um, desire or something, or whatever it might be. The first thing that's activated in the brains are the, is the chemistry that stimulates the thinking processes, unconscious and conscious thinking processes. They translate into hormones. Then you feel. Interesting. You see, it's, it's, the, other, it's the other way around. And, and people are always talking about this as if, as if they're out of control of their feelings. It, once you're feeling something, you've already thought it. That's why you have to grip your thoughts. Your thoughts, and, unless, and actually people are very unscientific in the way they think about what their feeling actually is. You know, being happy is not a feeling, it's a state. You know, it's, 
once you start to be more scientific about the terminology, and it's a bit like um, if you want to um, redesign an engine, what you have to do is take the engine apart, look at all the constituent elements, improve them, put them back together again. And what we attempt to do with resilience sometimes when we're chatting about it is attempt to fix the engine by, um, you know, standing on the other side of the street and, you know, shouting at it. And that sort of doesn't really work. <laughs> and part of what we think about when we're empowering people is to really get this clear, this difference between thinking and feeling and then understanding where emotions fit into that curve and actually tie and tidying up and cleaning up the language around thoughts and feelings is one of the key things in terms of really understanding your feelings because we've been we've been sort of trained and slightly disempowered by thinking our feelings are um the sort of be all and end all of who we are as people well you know actually that's not necessarily the case if 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 you call everything a feeling which most things aren't then actually that becomes an issue. So you really can't understand when your feelings are working and working for you and against you. And this is a big subject. We could spend, let me just say, an hour and a half talking about this subject, and we haven't got time to talk about that. But I think one of the things, you can read a lot of data around this. If you can separate out this understanding of thoughts and feelings, then you can actually control your thoughts, which will affect your feelings. And the feelings are the things that are going on inside of your body. Things which are going on broadly inside of your brain or thoughts. That's really powerful. And uh, I think distinguishing between thoughts and feelings and actions as well, and understanding that yeah. actions can drive the feelings. It's not necessarily that, that feelings are, are the beginning of the process. I think that's a really powerful your, concept. Your actions, your actions drive your thoughts before they drive your yeah. feelings. And, and what's more important is your gut can drive your um, your thoughts and your mindset more quickly than your actions. Absolutely, I think. It... So, you know, this is this is some of the radical sort of research coming out now in terms of things like depression. And I'm not I don't trust me. I don't trivialize depression at all, because if you have clinical depression, that's something you need to take very seriously. But sometimes what we're calling depression is actually just low mood. And, you know, you can fix that with diet and exercise these days. And what we find is a lot of people in the workplace taking, you know, drugs, which are really, have really serious negative effects or, you know, spending 60, 70 sessions of counselling where actually they just need to fix some, sometimes at a trivial level, um, just need to start fixing their diet and their lifestyle. Yeah, it's, it's incredibly powerful when you look at different practices. Um, I did a lot of study into gratitude uh, late last year as I was putting together an ebook about it. Um, and it, it's amazing what focusing on um, physical uh, well, so you can you can begin practices of gratitude that are that are habits that are actions that you take that can impact the way that you think and that can actually change the way your body feels. It can make you feel physically um, stronger and more fit. And people don't realize, I think, sometimes the the connection between our body and how it feels and how that impacts how we emotionally and mentally feel, um, and vice versa. And it's a cycle. It's, we're in one body. We're in one physical unit. Um, and those, those parts actually do impact each other. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Gratitude, forgiveness, accountability, they're all thoughts. And those thoughts have implications in the way, once we start to believe those, well, we use and, and integrate those thinking patterns into our heads we um, save the amount of energy that our brain and our body needs to operate that day. Therefore, we've got more energy for picking up the phone and having the resilience to make another 20 calls. 
because you're not focused on the wrong thinking patterns and you can focus on what you need to do. You see, sometimes when resilience, what we've got to do is we have to clear the mental, well, you, you mentioned the word earlier, the mental sort of baggage or churn of all that irrelevant thinking by actually learning to think positively about something else. When I mean positively, I don't mean positive mental attitude. I mean thinking specifically about something rather than thinking randomly about something else. That's, that's a really powerful distinction of um, a lot of times I think people perceive the idea of positive thinking as I just need to sit there with a smile on my face and try to think happy thoughts. <laughs> and that's not necessarily what it is. The idea of having, um, having some intentional, uh, we see this sometimes in athletes actually, um, where they'll sit and intentionally envision winning something or intentionally envision what would it look like if I were to perform like I want to perform. And is that kind of what you're talking about here? Well, as well. I mean, I think that's another point, which is really clever. In, you know, we talk about this idea of the corporate athlete, don't we? We, we? we sort of have this idea, and people like David Eagleman have, have talked about this idea, that actually you can't really, the brain really can't differentiate much between reality and its imagination. And so you've seen lots of athletes, particularly um, people like Usain Bolt and some of those, you know, um, Olympians. You'll notice that they'll visualize the race before they run it. So by the time they actually start the race, they've already run it once. So the, he knows he's going to win. And it's, and therefore, when, when we're thinking about, um, I, mean, I mean, years ago, I learned some of those techniques myself, you know, in terms of um, being a musician and performing well, but also being a salesperson, you know, doing a great sales meeting. We visualize it first. You've, you've, sort of, you've sort of worked out, you've planned, you've planned for contingencies, you've, you've sort of thought about yourself, how you might perform in this, this aspect and this aspect, same for presentations. You know, you've actually run the presentation, you've run the sales call, you've run whatever interaction it is in your head before you do it. And then your brain's already comfortable. It's it's energy. It's it's used energy up in the planning. So when you get into that meeting, you've already thought through some of the issues. So if something unexpected does appear, the brain has more energy available to it. That makes a lot of sense and explains it. You've kind of you've you've driven that road before, so you don't have to pay attention as much to the road and the steps because you're you've got the kind of muscle memory within your brain to do that. And instead, you can focus and and really um, listen better and pay more attention and then pivot as necessary because you're not um, scrambling for the stuff that should be muscle memory. Um, and, that, and, that, and that's so interesting, isn't it, when you think about this, Elizabeth, because, you know, the primary skill of a great leader and manager is to be a good coach. Absolutely. You know, so, so why, why do we coach? We coach to rehearse. That's why we're coaching. So for some people, especially um, new, new kids around the block or people who are really good already but need to be even better, we coach them. Now, you know, why is it okay for Usain Bolt to have a coach, but it's not okay for your number one salesman to have a coach or salesperson to have a coach? Why, why is that? Because are they perfect? Do they get it right every single time? The answer is no, because actually all – and that's the coming back to pride in our craft, isn't it? You know, if you want to be at the top of your game, you've got to have someone who stands next to you, helps you rehearse, and turns you into that sort of embodiment of the corporate athlete. And you know where where we got this from? Was from I got this from the world of music because there are very few musicians who saunter out to play a concerto who've just picked their instrument up twenty minutes before and thought, oh, I wonder how this works. That would be quite impressive, I have to say. 
it would be it would be something else i think is the way you're thinking <laughs> well of. if they were successful that would be quite impressive i cannot imagine they would be successful i took piano lessons for a few years as a kid and honestly i was taking piano lessons mostly because my older sister took piano lessons and i was copying her i had no strong passion for playing piano and um even with lessons and practice uh you know playing an instrument is a difficult thing and it requires not just a one-time skill but um you know uh, ongoing practice if i were to touch a piano now having not really interacted with one in you know over 30 years uh maybe almost 30 years uh i do not think i would be all that successful <laughs> well no but let's, let's just do just just talk about that for a second because this is really interesting because of course what we know about the brain is it's it's young and forming is that it's it's it, it decides to deselect things that don't get used so actually if you've done any form of musical training and any form of foot stretching or dance training in your younger days that's very very good for your brain it's very good for building some gray matter in the in the um, in the specific part of the brain and because um, we always thought that the brain sort of you know got to 21 and just died off but now we know it actually improves and things like music and dance and movements such like it's amazing when you ingrain things as, as a young child how it stays current in your head right through in fact it's dementia patients if you think about it in their um, 70s 80s you can remember everything from the childhood they can't remember the working memory stuff that they had to ingrain later than that point and that's why if you've got kids teach it, get them to play a musical instrument or get them to do dance in some way, shape or form. It's, it's extraordinarily good for you. And even if you're not doing it, have a bash now, but it's harder. I mean, I've been trying to learn Spanish recently. Oh my goodness gracious. Oh, you see, I had um, music lessons instead of going to Spanish when I was a kid. <laughs> so uh, I can, I'm still all right with music, but I can't, I can't do the languages thing. So my brain deselected it to save energy. So, you know, sometimes, and this is the thing about ingraining and practicing and rehearsing and using stuff from your kit bag from when you were younger. It's interesting how many people wanted to be something when they're younger, learned all the skills, and then 30 years later, they're not using them. But all those skills are still in their body. They're still in their mind. They've still had them ingrained because the brain didn't lose them. It just it just put them to one side. And um, and I think it's often, a, um, it's often a shame that people don't, you know, you've got some musical fluency in your head, even if you weren't that interested, you've got it. And it's there forever. Now, and it might be giving you enjoyment when you actually listen to music, or it might be smoothing the way when it comes to understanding the rhythmic patterns when people talk to you, because it's still in your head. I mean, it's interesting, here you are on a speech-based um, medium, and of course you tell me that you learned the piano. Well, I'm not surprised, because it's an auditory process. I actually am reminded of um, when I was younger, uh, as a part of a church youth group, we would go and um, we would go to nursing homes and, and elder care facilities and um, sing with the patients. And it's amazing how people who have, have lost the ability to, to speak and to communicate kind of verbally can remember songs that they learned when they were kids. And it's, it's just so incredibly powerful, um, the way that, that things might live in the back of your mind that you don't even realize are there. And even simpler than that, I mean, it's, it's that thing about, if I, I remember years ago, um, um, going out with my sales manager, or sales director, I can't remember it was now, and we we're going to some sort of sales call or other, I can't remember it was, and um, he wasn't a fan of planning. But as we were driving up to the, um, the front of the building, he started playing this quite peculiar music. I, I, I don't know what it was. It was some sort of strange electronic hip-hop music. 
And I was saying, what on earth? And so, you know, I've got my fingers in my ears and he's yelling and howling and singing along. And he gets out of the car and he's all energised because that's what music does for you. It's part of feeding energy into your system. And, you know, all, all of us have a favourite song. And, I mean, you know, if it's good enough for the athletes who are coming out in the Super Bowl or any big sporting occasion, you know, music fires you up. It's a very... It's a very it's a very old idea. It's been in our um, sort of collective consciousness for thousands and thousands of years. In fact, you know, music is often seen as the beginning of language, not the other way around. And music comes from the noises that we used to make when we lived in caves thousands and thousands and millions of years ago. That's so funny that you mentioned having that kind of song to prepare you for something, because on a podcast I was listening to earlier this week, I think it was um, the Happier podcast with Gretchen Rubin. One thing that they recommended to people is uh, find yourself a walkout song. Mm -hmm like athletes have. And if you can have that walkout song that gives you energy and focus, um, you can figure out when do I want to employ that tool? You know, do I, do I listen to it every morning when I wake up or on my way into work or do I save it for those key important meetings? But if you've got that song that gives you that energy, that drive, that just extra little boost, um, that's an incredibly powerful thing. And for some people, of course, it's not a song. So if you think about um, Howard Gardner's that old idea of multiple intelligence, sometimes it's a move. It's, yeah, it's that a power step. pose that people were talking about yeah. a few years ago. Yeah, exactly. um, some people might have thought that was gimmicky, yeah. but you know what? It, it actually really can work. And just just standing a certain way, um, whatever it takes for you um, to, to get that, that kind of energy, that motivation, again, taking an action, controlling your behavior um, to, to impact the way that you feel. Yeah, absolutely. And I've seen people who, um, uh, you know, I, 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 I remember there's a, there's a very famous um, entertainer in the UK called Bruce Forsyth. He's, he's, he's uh, it's not long died, and he's very, very famous. And he always used to talk about, just before he went on stage, he used to do a little hop step. He used to, and it was like that, the noise of his feet used to make, and he used to do this little skip. And he said, as soon as that moment happened, bang, he was a performer. It was the way of him switching his persona from being the guy behind the set mm-hmm. to the guy in front of the cameras. And I think sometimes we just need those little things that help us switch our personas. So when we're, especially if you're going, I mean, I often find that in, in my world, what the way that we win business is we've got to write some tedious proposal and then we have a big presentation to do. And so, you know, you're, you're bouncing and you're, you've got your, you know, your Tigger voice on and your, your Tigger actions and you're, you're bouncing around and you're doing what you need to do. And it doesn't matter if you're an introvert or an extrovert, at that moment in time, you're coming across, well, it's being authentic, but as the best version of yourself. And then you walk out and you collapse in a heap because you've used up the energy you've needed and you've fed yourself adrenaline in a very conscious way to give you the energy to to really be able to deal with that that moment and i think being more i'm not going to use the word i'm not going to use the word mindful <laughs> but um mindful is a word that's often used but it's been it's actually just about being conscious about how you are in that moment about the, so you so you know what's happening around you and um managing your energy is a critical part of being a human being because if you can manage your energy you can make choices and you can stay in control of yourself and if you want to simplify resilience resilience is all about having choices creating choices and having control controlling the things you can control and learning to make choices about how we don't bother about the things that we can't do anything about i mean there's the secret of resilience in one word you know one set of sentence that's what it really all boils down to that is uh, 
That's a really powerful statement and um, feeling that you have the right because you do to make choices um, and then taking those those choices. Now I'm going to just I'm just going to leap in. Okay. It's not feeling that you do. Oh, it's knowing. It's, it's knowing that you do. Absolutely. It's where a guest comes on and nags you, isn't it? I do apologize. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's good. I I recognized I did it at the same time as you yeah. did, and you were right. And if if uh, I, I overuse the word feeling. And that's something that I'm going to pay attention to because we shouldn't be driven by feelings and um, be more intentional there is, is really powerful. The word shouldn't is, again, something that we need to oh. leap on. And just say, <laughs> it's my choice. If you want to be, fill your boots, but you don't have to be. That's the choice. I think what happened, it's this idea of learning and development over the last 30 years and the way that we train in resilience, particularly, and, and assertiveness with, William, with, with women in particular, is this idea of saying, you know, if I, if I link everything I do to feelings, then actually it somehow validates me because you can't tell me how I feel. But actually what we've not realized is that it sort of weakens our position. Because it makes us sound emotional. It makes us sound out of control. And actually, why, why would you do that? Because you're not. So let's stop pretending. And let's actually just say, let's figure out, this is what I know. This is who I am. This is what I want. And this is how I'm going to get it. And I'm not going to, you know, and, and sometimes I'm going to feel annoyed with you. And then that's okay to say it. Because when you say it sparingly, people will really take notice. Absolutely. All right. Well, as I mentioned in the introduction to this episode, you host a podcast of your own called Resistance Unraveled. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about it in case they want to hear more um, from you? Uh, yeah, it's Resilience Unraveled. Um, and, it's and I said the same thing last time we recorded, and I don't know why I do that. <laughs> Thank you. I mean, you're just showing off now if you just repeated your mistakes. So there you go. <laughs> no, it's no problem. It's Resilience Unraveled, and it's on iTunes, Stitcher, and all the popular places. We've got over 130, 140 episodes. And basically, it's it's either people who've, who've done remarkable things with resilience, or it's people who uh, work in the in the world of resilience in some way, shape, or form. And um, so we've had people on who talk about suicide, um, comedians who talk about suicide. We've had sports people who talk about suicide. And that's the sort of the downside of it and the sort of the most extreme version. We have people who talk about thrivology. We've got people who talk about um, sales processes and resilience. We've got people who are leaders and startup businesses and how we bounce back. We've had people who have... Um, who are looking at sort of the, the latest advances in uh, psychology, pharmacology. We've got people who are now experimenting and using CBD. And uh, we're looking at all those different things that really help you as a, as a person perform better uh, under the sort of broad banner of resilience. Because resilience, in a way, is um, your ability to bounce back when things have gone wrong and thrive when things have gone well, weather the storm, but also build the capacity to be resilient in the first place. And sometimes, you know, you've got to change your opinions and approaches when things are going well. So you've got the resources, capacity when things aren't going quite so well. Because if you have got to January and things aren't going well, but you're already, sorry, if you've got to February and things aren't going well, but you're already exhausted, that's the biggest problem of all. Because if you're exhausted, you've used up all your energy, that's that's going to be tough. And actually, the first thing you've got to do is re re-energize yourself, revitalize, recharge, renew. I think a lot of words begin with re now. I'll stop that there. But that, that's the thing you have to do before you start looking at your plan again, because sometimes you sometimes have to center yourself and get back in the game 
in order to play the game that's in front of you. Because if you're if you're sort of you know a bit disassociated from yourself, that's that's a, that's a challenge. And so the podcast's all about all those different things. It's very wide. Sometimes we interview people. Sometimes I just have a rant for twenty minutes. The last time I did, I had had some fun just on my own. I was talking about people in the world who are perfectionists. I'm just waiting for you to fill the gap there, Elizabeth. And, uh, <laughs> and um, we talked about, you know, the sort of horror of, um, in particular, being married to a perfectionist, but also having perfectionists in our lives. And, um, you know, how that can be very, you know, tr- troublesome. But we cover all sorts of weird and wonderful stuff from relationships to business through to burnout through to all those different areas i thoroughly enjoyed myself and this year um, i'm bringing out our first book around the subject so um i'm hoping to consolidate some of our thoughts and my thoughts into those sorts of areas wonderful um definitely i'm i I can imagine many of our listeners are going to be checking out resilience unraveled um, after this conversation today because uh, it's it's a very powerful topic and something that um, if you're struggling with it if it's an area of focus for you to listen to other people to hear all these different ideas and um, figure out what are strategies that people are using that resonate with you. And you might learn from a comedian or you might learn from an athlete or you might uh, find out about some, you know, whether it's a a pill or something like CBD, um, trying different strategies that that seem to work better for you and just figuring that out because everybody is unique. Um, And that's that's a really important focus. It sure are. All right. We always like to share book recommendations with our listeners. We have a lot of listeners who are big readers. Are there any books that you would recommend to listeners, either about resilience in general or um, any other you know, topics that you think would be useful? Well, I'm a big fan of David Eagleman. So um, go and have a look at some of his work on YouTube. Very interesting. Um, I'm also a big fan of Dan Pink. And he's written a very interesting book about um, sales. And he's also written a book that links into it called motivation about motivation and the way that um, we mm-hmm. get motivation to sell better and i think that's quite a jazzy book um i also would highly recommend to anyone who's stressed and who's um needing a bit of um rejuvenation time to re- read a good work of fiction and i know that's a peculiar place to start but we really do i uh, really can lose ourselves when we read fiction and so sometimes i think Getting a good work of fiction out of the li- out of the library. How old am I? Goodness sake! Download, <laughs> downloading from your your local digital shop some sort of work of fiction. I think can be really good because I don't think you know life is about being a whole human being, not just reading business books. But um, we have on our um, podcast tons and tons of book re- uh, um, recommendations as well. And I just think you can end up with so many books to read, you can get quite stressed out about it. So use the audible things and, you know, use podcasts because I think they're quite fascinating. And I also would recommend just listening to something new or reading something you've never read before by a new author once a month. Does your brain the power of good to get something new and novel into your head? So that they, they would be the places I'd start. That's wonderful. And I I can definitely second the recommendation of reading fiction. Uh, So often we feel like I need to read nonfiction, I need to read advice, I need to read, you know, history or whatever it might be, um, where we feel like it's, you know, self-improvement. And both the, the escape that fiction provides, but also the energy 
and the the ideas and the creativity that it sparks um, to just get lost in a book for a whole afternoon and look up and feel like you were in a different world. Yeah. Um, it's amazing how you feel afterwards. So, and what's fascinating for me, and I remember I was struggling with a, a big project, a, a writing project I had, and I was really struggling for inspiration, and. Um, for some reason, I put the project down. I had the chance. I was doing a flight or something. And on the way out, I read some works by Robert Rankin, who's a very anarchic, very silly sort of science fantasy writer. And on the way back, I read Sapiens by um, uh, Harari. And um, mm-hmm. from reading those two books, I coalesced a completely new way of thinking about something that I've never thought about before. And so so perspective comes from reading things that seem to be trivial and people learn so much from you know your brain's beautifully wired to make order out of chaos so creating more chaos in your brain by reading different things it allows us to to make discontinuous leaps between different subject areas and history is a great thing to read really is so good for you Absolutely. And I find um, I have been making intentional choices to read uh, fiction from writers who have very different backgrounds from me, whether that's um, racially or from different countries. Um, And that is also a great way to kind of broaden your thinking and get some of that chaos and those new ideas. My favorite type of uh, of book to read is is kind of science fiction fantasy. And so often... So often people think, oh, that's that's just silliness. But a, a good writer of science fiction and fantasy has to recognize our world yeah. and what makes it work and how people think, and then actually take very intentional choices to to make changes to that. You know, what if aliens were real? What if um, people could, you know, were telepathic? What if whatever? And how would that impact the world? And the way that can broaden your mind and the way that you think as you're reading it, it is just incredibly powerful to me. And I always, you know, you look up and you're just like, you're a different person after reading a, a powerful book. So um, all I'd say is how do you, how do you cope with words being spelled correctly when you're reading British books? That I find, like aluminium. I find that to be <laughs> so hilarious. We always think it's very funny the way you spell color and the way you spell, um, you know, you have different words, you know, what's it, what is it where a common People united by or separated by a common language or something. It's always, I was I was in the states recently, and it is quite funny the different words you use for things and the different spellings of things. And it does tickle us in the UK. This uh, aluminum word that you talk about. Yes, aluminium. Oh, so weird. I remember the first time I was in the UK. Um, I. I, I actually had something prepared to say because I was like, I'm going to spell things wrong. I'm going to pronounce words wrong and they're not going to be used to it. And so I'm like, I know that often you will have words and you will put an S instead of a Z. And I was like, oh, wait, it's not even a Z. You call it a Z. <laughs> so even talking about the differences, you use different terms. Uh, yeah, I think as a reader, that's another way to broaden your mind when you see the different um, the different spellings and the different ways people communicate You know, the words in different orders and um, some writers who are so focused on writing a beautiful sentence, it's almost like poetry versus people who have maybe a more spare, um, and just, you know, simply telling a story. Uh, it, it really is, is good for, I think it's good for everybody, but I'm a big reader. <laughs> and the point of this is, um, because people might be thinking, oh, and is this relevant to sales? Well, sales is just a communication channel. So the better we can, um, expand, 
our ability to communicate in different ways, the better we hook into different sorts of customers and clients. Because it's not about what matters to us. It's about having that portfolio of approaches that interests different people. And I often find, you know, I, I look at, I'm not interested in sport personally, but I follow a sport because I know a lot of my clients do. Because when they're talking to me, they want sporting metaphors. You know, and, and a, chat, a friend of mine, uh, we've been doing some work to pair of us and do a leadership program, isn't he? And our client loves going walking and hiking and going up and down mountainside. So my colleague's been talking about walking and hiking and going up mountainside, mountain mountainside, and and has read things about it and has got interested and has started doing it himself. Because actually, you you need to be curious about the world because it's, you become a better salesperson when you understand the experiences that your clients have. The number of, I've lived in foreign countries, or different countries in the UK, I should say, and um, it's amazing how much commonality you have with people when you say, oh, yes, I used to live there as well. How did you find it? And then you've got something different to talk about. So life experience, reading different things, having different experiences, we do that because it's going to help us win a great deal down the line. Absolutely. And, and being able to relate to people is such a powerful thing. And if you live a very small life and, and you read very little and you travel very little and you don't explore things um, through whatever methods you have available, it, it will be difficult to relate to all the different people that you might encounter over time. Yeah. Yeah. And what an opportunity lost. And, you know, in some um, places in the world, we believe this is, uh, this is our only chance. So why not make the most of it? Eh? And that's all about resilience, isn't it? Having that mindset of saying, let's live every day and make the most of every day. And if you want your life to go slower, so you don't feel as if your whole existence disappears in the blink of an eye, fill your, make your hippocampus and amygdala work hard by filling it full of interesting experiences. And that slows your life down. All right. Well, I think that's a great way to end the show. So Russell, if you want people to learn more about you and your work, where should they go? Well, they're more than welcome to come to our website, which is uh, qedod.com. And um, the best place to catch me is on LinkedIn. And um, come feel free. I, I, and um, then you can get links to websites and podcasts. And um, if anyone wants to send an email, have a look at some of our online courses and such like, they'd be more than welcome to have a chat with me. And um, always happy to spend a bit of time having a chat to people on your side of the pond. Love it. Wonderful. And um, we will include links to all of those in the show notes. So thank you again so much for speaking with me today, Russell. I really do appreciate your time. Me too. I thoroughly enjoyed it. I'm glad we did it a second time around. It was very different from the first time, wasn't it? I think it was. And I think we got a lot deeper into, into some very interesting topics. Thank you to all of our listeners for tuning into today's show. You can find the notes and resources for everything we've been talking about today at criteriaforsuccess.com slash pod 224. Be sure to tune in on Friday for another inspirational episode. As a reminder, if you have any feedback for us, topics or questions you want us to address, um, guest suggestions, or if you're interested in being a guest yourself, you can reach us at podcast at criteriaforsuccess.com. If you're enjoying the show, please recommend us to a friend and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever it is that you're listening today. While you're there, please leave us a rating or a review. That'll help more people find the show, and it lets us know what's working and where we have room to improve. Remember to follow us on Twitter at let's underscore talk underscore sales. Let's Talk Sales is a production of Criteria for Success and is produced by Ariana Miskell, Laura Marchoff, Mark Krogan, and me, Elizabeth Frederick. Happy selling!